Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Today is a day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it, Lord. We see your fingerprints over everything, Lord, and you're in all and through all, and all things are for you, Lord. And for that, Lord, we just want to be grateful. We want to surrender to you, Lord. We pray tonight as we come and present ourselves to you as holy living sacrifices that you would speak to our hearts through your word, Lord. We pray the power of your Holy Spirit to impart these truths to our heart, Lord. Our uh, spirit is willing, but sometimes our flesh is weak, Lord. So please help us to be sponges in our spirit to receive every bit of the word that you have for us, Lord. And we do believe that your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, Lord. We know it's the bread for our soul and it breaks up the fallow ground. It's a mirror to show us what we are and in it contains all things that pertain to life and godliness, Lord. So as we present ourselves to your table, we pray, Lord, that you would impart all of these truths to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, can you say hello before you sit down? All right, everybody, go ahead and have a seat and take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, please, chapter 11. And tonight we'll just be tackling chapter 11. That's the plan. And then when we get to chapter 12, it starts a a new section in the book of Romans, and that section goes all the way to the end. So what sections have we been looking at? So just by way of reminder, the way that the book of Romans is laid out, is my outline, at least, the one I like to view the book of Romans through this, this outline, this lens, is number one, sin. Very good. Number two, salvation. Number three, sanctification. Number four, sovereignty. That's what we're in now. So uh, a few big words in there. Uh, Salvation should be um, something that is understandable. Sin is very understandable, very relatable. Um, Sovereignty. That's what we're looking at now. That just means that God is in control. So section, the section or, or chapters 9, 10, and 11 really deal with God's sovereignty, particularly looking at the nation of Israel. And so if you're ever wondering or struggling about if the Bible's true or not, you just have to look at the Jew. The Jew shows us The Bible is true because it is through the Jew that God had been working out and has worked out his plan of salvation that actually extends all the way past the the church age, which we're in now. And so we've been pointing out that there is a promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And Abraham was the father of the Jews. He was elected or chosen by God to be the one in whom through his descendants the Messiah would come and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He was promised that he would have land. He was promised that he would have families and descendants And his name would be great. And so throughout time, if one was interested, they can look at the Jew and look at God's faithfulness. We are the benefactors of being able to look back because of the time that we live and see about 6,000 years of history being worked out demonstrating and proving that God is true and His Word is faithful. So, to know the Jew, to understand the Jew, to 
know the land of Israel. And to understand that is to have confidence in God's word. To know that out of anything that there is available for one to believe in and trust in, there's one thing that has proven itself through time. And that that is the word of God. Man's ideas and thoughts will pass away. Even in our time, uh, it doesn't matter how old you are, you've seen fads. Have you seen fads come and go? Fads come and go. A lot of people stake their whole identity on fads. Maybe you have done that before. Maybe you saw yourself in a particular way, whether it was as a hippie at one point or a skater or a surfer or a jock or a nerd or an academia person or a musician or whatever. But you, you, these fads, they come and go. But it's the one thing, the Word of God, that stands forever. The confidence that we have in the Word of God is because it's proven. And the Word of God actually asks us to test it. And so as we look at the scriptures tonight in chapter 11, what we're looking at is the future of Israel. In chapter 10, we looked at the present time of Israel. And in chapter 9, we looked at the past of Israel. So as we dive in, in chapter 11, let's just keep in mind that this has been written for us to have confidence as we look at the nation of Israel today, we should rejoice that they have a language that was lost, that they have a nation that was demolished, that there is a people called the Jewish people. All of that is because God is fulfilling His promises to them and will continue to do that to the end of the age. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 11. As Paul says, I say then, has God cast away His people? So that's the question. Why is he saying that? He has been arguing the point that Israel, the nation of Israel not individual Jews, because Paul writing this is an individual Jew who has come to faith in Christ, but the, the nation in general had rejected Christ as their Messiah. What was the big hang-up for them? What was the trouble? What, what was the hurdle that was so difficult for them to get over? It was their traditions. It was their man-made traditions that had come from the Word of God, but then developed into man-made traditions in which they had so much of their identity built in. We pointed out last week that for a Jew to recognize Jesus as their Messiah would mean they would have to look at everything that they believed in in the past as something that was wrong and didn't help them except for it might bring them to a relationship to Christ. The law in particular. So they had a law. That was a big term in the book of Romans. The law. The Jews believed that it was by obeying the law that they would be made right with God. That was number one. Number two, they believed because they were descendants of Abraham that that qualified them in and of itself to be right with God and enter into the kingdom of God. So law-keeping, which would mean a self-righteousness, and then their relationship to Abraham. Those two things is what they really stake their whole identity on. And they, they put their eternity in those things. 
And then Christ came along and he would tell the most religious of the religious. Do you remember Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee. He was a leader of the Pharisees. And Jesus told him, hey, Nick, you must be born again. What do you mean I must be born again? How can I be born again? That seems very strange. And he, he said that when we're born, in essence, when we're born, we're born physically in the world, but we're born sinners. And that's why there comes a point where one must be born again. In other words, they must be born spiritually. And when Jesus was introducing that to Nicodemus, he was introducing the fact that it is only by faith in God, particularly in Christ, that one is made right with God. Not by works, but by faith. In the book of Romans, this argument is being worked out. And so for the Jewish person to come to terms to the fact that being a descendant of Abraham would not grant them eternal life. Obeying the laws would not grant them eternal life. But it would be by faith. And then Paul points all the way back to the father of faith. Who's that? Abraham. And he says, even Abraham, your father, who you look at as the one in whom you have a lot of pride of your heritage, even for him, he believed God. And what happened? It was accounted to him as righteousness. It was his belief that made him righteous. Belief in God. So now that, that's something that happens to us. That happens to someone who is faced with the reality of their condition before God as a sinner. The recognition that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus calls us then to turn, to turn away from the direction we're going and to turn to Him. In order to turn to Him, we have to turn from the direction we're going. When Jesus would call His disciples, that common saying that He would say was, follow me. And I guarantee you, Jesus was going in a different direction than they were going. So they would be required to go a different direction. And so this is the reality that every believer faces. And this is the struggle oftentimes that people have. I'm sure all of us, if you are truly saved, have had that struggle of facing the reality of if I follow Jesus, I can't keep following my own way. I have to do what He says. I have to listen to Him. I have to obey Him. And so this is what the Jews were facing. So the question that Paul is putting out here is a question he knew that they would be asking. So because generally the Jews had rejected God, and because of that, God had now went to the Gentiles with the gospel. Does that mean that's it for the Jew? Are they done? His answer is a, a emphatic, certainly not. Certainly not. So that's important. This is vital to our understanding of the Word of God. And you know what? This is actually vital to our understanding of the end times, eschatology. To understand that eschatology, the study of the end times, is still all about Israel. And Paul makes it very clear here, the church is not Israel. And one viewpoint of eschatology is that the church will go through the tribulation... And part of that theology is to say that the church is now Israel. That God's done with Israel, kicked them to the curb, even though they have these promises that were uh, an everlasting covenant that God made. 
And so now that's done and God's done with them. And here Paul is dealing with that. He says, certainly not. That's not the thing at all. He says, or in verse 1 it says, Has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know that Scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they, Israel, they have killed your prophets and they have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. So this is quoted from 1 Kings chapter 19. This is right after the prophet Elijah had that epic battle on Mount Carmel with the prophets of the false gods, Baal. And he won because God was victorious. But right after that, Jezebel didn't like what went on until she looked to have his hide and his head to kill him. And so he takes off. Elijah's on the run. He goes about 200 miles to a place in the desert near Mount Sinai, if you're familiar with that. And he's, he's there, and he says, Lord, this, this mighty, powerful man of God who just had this epic battle victory, and he, he says, Lord, I can't take this anymore. I just want to die. Can, can you just take me home right now? This is too much. And the reason he is saying that is interesting. We find a, a more information about that here is because, remember, he was a prophet to the Jews. He was a prophet to the nation of Israel and as he's speaking for the, for the Lord, that's what prophets would do. They would speak for the, for the Lord to the nation of Israel. And, and when he spoke for the Lord, they just wanted to kill him. Ahab was the, the king of Israel and Jezebel his wife. And, and now he, he's in this place. And I love what the, the answer was to him. Go to sleep and get something to eat. You'll feel better later. It's amazing how many naps or how many things a nap can cure and a sandwich. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Be that as it may, serving the Lord can be difficult. Following the Lord, even in times of great victory, one begins to realize the spiritual weapons that are against the servant of the Lord. So you may see somebody here at church serving the Lord, maybe in children's church or something. You, you see those smiley, happy faces of people who you drop your kids off. But know this, they're going through spiritual warfare. Know that an usher that says hi to you, when you walk in, they're going through spiritual warfare. The worship team, the sound, whenever you take that step forward, you're going, through, you're going to go through spiritual warfare. And Elijah, this great prophet who had this great battle, is such a great demonstration of the fact that much of the difficulty in ministry it comes from the disappointment that a minister can have in the lack of response of the people that he or she is ministering to. Here, it was the nation of Israel. And he just, yeah, they were trying to kill him, but at the same time, it just he had such a burden for his own people. It just broke his heart. 
is just so discouraging. He wanted his people, just like Paul, as we've noticed through this section or through the book of Romans, is Paul just wanted his people to know the Lord so bad. You guys all know what I'm talking about. You know that friend, that son or daughter or that mom or dad or whoever that they don't know the Lord? You know the heartache that's involved there? But see, Satan is behind that. Stirring up this overwhelming disappointment in the minister who cares. I'm not saying minister in terms of title of minister. I'm saying anyone who serves the Lord in any capacity. This disappointment, this discouragement, this great man of God, he just said, Lord, I just had enough. I just can't take it anymore. Almost the, the more I love the people, Paul would say this, the more I love your people, the more they want to do bad things to me. And so there's the discouragement. But see, notice that the Apostle Paul is reaching back to the Old Testament to validate and prove a point. Paul is doing that because he is showing and demonstrating that there is this seamless thread that runs through the totality of Scripture. That this narrative that if we pick it up here with Paul, it didn't just start with Paul. It started 6,000 years earlier in this seamless thread of unity of the Bible that Paul is part of, that you and I are part of, that we're fulfilling in God's sovereignty and God's sovereign plan. And so as he reaches back to this occasion of Elijah, he, he's doing that to, to demonstrate something. Look at verse 4. So that's what Elijah says. Elijah says, these Jews, they've killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and it's only me that's left, and they want to kill me. So in verse 4, it says, but what, what, what does the divine response say to him? God answers what he said, and he says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What is that called? That's called a remnant. Man, I find this so encouraging. But I also find in this a spirit of warning and caution that you and I need to be careful of because now to the servant of God, anyone who is taking these things seriously, you're going to start feeling like, what's wrong with everybody else? They don't do what I'm doing. I'm the only one that does these things. I'm the only one that's serious about my faith. I'm the only one who's advanced to this stage of spirituality. And you can see Elijah having this focus on himself, this self-focus. He's really in the flesh here. And part of him being in the flesh is just his thought that, what about everybody else? Nobody does what I do. And in a sense, he is right, but that doesn't mean that there weren't other people that were also not bowing the knee to Baal. And so here's God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is from Elijah's viewpoint, nobody else, he, he would maybe say, nobody's helping me. Nobody's joining me in the battle. Nobody's encouraging me. Nobody is supporting me. And God's answer is, he's saying, you just don't know and understand all the people that I have serving me and not bowing the knee to Baal in all these different places. So you may have a job. Or you feel like you're the only one and everybody else is woke. 
And everybody else is on board with all these things that are going on in the world. You're only one, the only one, but I bet there are many who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You just don't know. There are many Christians and believers in many parts and walks in life. And you know what I would encourage you to do? If you're discouraged about loneliness or feeling isolated in a school or a job, I guarantee you, first and foremost, you're not the only one. The second thing is pray that God would bring a person to you that you can mutually be encouraged with and by and that you can pray with. And God made this revelation to Elijah, one, because it was the truth, but two, to encourage him and say, hey, there's a bunch of us left. And what God was doing is in that remnant that he had left, he was fulfilling his promise because God will always continue to have Jewish people left. And he needed to do that even when it looked like they're going to be completely wiped out. Even when it looked like there were those in charge in different situations that wanted to completely wipe out the Jews. Even in Jesus' time, Herod wanted to kill all the Jewish babies under two years old because he was trying to kill the Messiah. And so Pharaoh tried to do that after that. And we see these things. It's, it's because these... The Jews have a target on their back. Why do they have a target on their back? It's because God has chosen them or elected them to fulfill His promise. And He's done that so that they would be a blessing to the world. And because of that, then Satan is after them. So just knowing that explains a lot, doesn't it? It explains it. It helps us to understand. And so... Paul's making the argument that even when Elijah said he was the only one, even then God had reserved for himself 7,000 who haven't bowed to Baal. And then in verse 5 it says, Even so then at this present time there is a remnant, that means just a small group, a small amount of people according to the election of grace. So we dealt with that word election of grace and that understanding in chapter 9 in detail. But suffice it to say that when he says that here, what he's doing is pointing out again his sovereignty. He's pointing out his control. He's pointing out that he is in charge because it goes back to the people that he selected to be a blessing to the whole world through the birth of the Messiah, and that's the Jewish people. And so all of the contemporary people to the Jews don't exist anymore. Only the Jews and their heritage and nationality exist. And that's because they were chosen and elected to fulfill God's plan. So even though things looked really dismal, even though things look like there's no way that God could use the Jews and continue to do that, here we are looking back at this statement 2,000 years after this statement about. And after Israel was deposed from the land for 2,000 years, and now they're back in the land, and we read statements like this, all we can say is, wow, God, you are in control of all things. Do you realize, think about all the things that it would have taken to get the Jews back in the land of Israel after 2,000 years of being out of the land. Think about all that it would have taken to preserve the Jewish race, even though the Jews were spread across the whole world. And many of those places and the people that were, they were in their land were hostile towards them. And yet, you and I 
can go now, catch an airplane, and land about 12 hours later, and walk, and see, and experience exactly what God is saying here. All we can do is say, praise the Lord. There's no way anybody in their right mind can say this was an accident. There's no way anybody can say and look at the Jews and look at Genesis 12.3 and say this was a random thing that happened. There's no way. It wouldn't be smart to say that. It wouldn't be realistic to say that. And yet we read a statement like this. And I want you to understand the gravity of this. I want you to understand for thousands of years of church history, they said there's no way that this could be true. So it has to be a different explanation. Until 1948. They're back. They're there. Do you realize... That's not that long ago. We are living in amazing times. We are living in times where we can look back and see these promises and then see in near his history, see them that they were fulfilled because of a statement like this. In verse 5, it says, And if it's by grace, what does that mean? Why is that an emphasis here? It's because Paul has been saying it has nothing to do with the Jewish people earning it, meriting it, deserving it. In fact, you could make the case that it was because the Jews were the least likely people that God chose them because he wanted the glory. Because he wanted people to recognize that it is him that's doing these things. He wants us to know and understand that it is by his hand that he has not only birthed the Jews, but kept and preserved the Jews. And so it is by grace that they were chosen. Why did he choose them? Who knows? But we know it wasn't anything inherently about them that was special or unique or gifted or talented. But God chose them. And so because of that, and here's the emphasis, because it was God's sovereign choice to choose a people to fulfill his plan, then that means that God is faithful to complete what he started with them. But not only that, if, if we look at this, we have to be able to see the application. If God is faithful to the Jews, what do you think He's going to be to you? Do you think He's going to be faithful to you or just the Jews? No, they're an example for us. So that we know that as He's faithful to the Jews, that's a tangible, physical way for us to understand that God is faithful to us. One, He will never leave us nor forsake us. Romans 8, you remember that? When we're talking about salvation and sanctification. And he said, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Well, that means because our salvation is not based on what we do, but it's based on what he did, what's that called? Grace. Then that means our salvation depends on Him keeping us saved, not on us keeping ourselves saved. And that's why it's grace. And that's why we can look at the nation of Israel and say, it wasn't up to them to be faithful over the years. If it was, they wouldn't be around anymore. It was up to God being faithful to them. And because of that, they're still around. So, evidence. You guys like evidence? You like facts? You like proof? You want to know the Bible is true? You want to know that God is faithful? Look at the Jews. 
Let's go on. Verse 5, if it's by grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What does that mean? It's one or the other. You can't mix them. Have you ever thought, if I do enough good stuff, then God will accept me and I'll be good to go to heaven? Have you ever talked to somebody that says, well, I'm basically a good person and because of that, God will accept me? Well, then you're trusting in works. And that means you're not trusting in grace. Well, that creates quite a problem for many false religions, doesn't it? Many false religions that would even say, I believe it's by grace and works. You still have to do something to get it. Well, then it's not grace anymore. This is an ironclad shut case. It's either one way or another. So you, you want to say, well, okay, let's go by works then. If you want to do it by works, that's an option. But Paul made the point and made it very clear that that's not a good option. That's impossible. Because the work that God requires is not maybe the work that we think. So we might think, well, I, I do works and I have works and my works will be good. But your works may not be the same as the works that God requires. And so the Bible tells us what that is. What's His works? Perfect. You have to be perfect. You have to never sin before. Not even think about a sin, not say a sin, not feel a sin. Ever. Not once. Your whole life. So I don't know too many people that would want to like literally test that and say, well, I think I want to try that way. Well, even by saying that, you've just sinned because that's called self-righteousness and that's a sin. So you're done. You're out. You better go the grace route. So you have one or the other. So the, the works way is, doesn't work. The grace way works. Why? Because Jesus did the work. How do we access that? By faith, by belief. This is his whole point in the book of Romans. That is by faith in Christ that we're made righteous. Not by what we do, but by faith. But Paul makes it really clear. You can't, it, it can't be both ways. It's one or the other. So in verse 7, he says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. But the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. Why is he saying that? Again, he's saying this is part of the plan that has been written down for our viewing pleasure to know that this is not made up here. This is historically worked out and proven. That's why he keeps saying it is written and he goes back to the Old Testament to validate it and prove it that this is not just something that happened in the New Testament but something the Old Testament told us all about. So what, what, what is this question? What is he really talking about here? What did Israel seek? They sought to be made right with God by the law. So that's what they were seeking. They were seeking a righteousness that would come by the law. And so the Bible points out very well, and the book of Romans points out very well, that the law could not affect and change a person on the inside. All it can do is show a person that they were sinful. The law was a, a tutor or a teacher. It taught mankind that they were sinners. 
But the Jews were relying on the law, trusting in the law, believing in the law. And many of those Jews were were not able, when the Messiah came, to accept him because of that. So he goes back to the Old Testament in Isaiah 29, verse 10. He says, just as it is written, God has given them, the Jews, a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, to this very day. So that was up to Paul's day. And that continues until our day. So what is the prophet Isaiah? What was he saying? What was he alluding to? And we find out as we start to work through the book of Romans, we start to see as the rejection of God led to a hardening of their heart. And so they embraced all these false gods and false idols. They did that right from the beginning. And they continued. They didn't listen to the prophets who told them to repent. Sometimes they did, but not not continually. And and here uh, Isaiah was telling them that because of that, it's interesting, that word stupor. It's, it says that God, so God sort of gave them over to their rejection. And, and God will do that. He gave them over to their rejection. But that word stupor is an interesting word because you, you can sort of look at it like, it, it actually can translate prickly. Referring to, if you ever hit your funny bone before, it's not very funny, is it? If you, your legs fallen asleep, it's that, that sort of condition to where you become numb to the things of God. Now, that can happen to somebody that's not a Jew too. This is a huge warning. Maybe especially for people like you who come on a Wednesday night and hear the word and take it seriously, we have to be so careful that we don't treat the word of God as just so common. We have to have an attitude. I've seen this happen so often. And I sense often that in my own heart I have to watch out for. Because I can get numb to the word of God I can go through the routine and the motions. But we're to have a certain approach to the Word of God. That's why the Jews, they were so familiar with the steps that would go up to the temple. They were all uneven. Some were shorter, some were taller, some were wider, some were thinner. And the reason was is because They didn't want someone to rush into worship without thinking about it, going through the motions. So as you would go up to worship, you'd have to look at the steps and change your step, sometimes step higher, sometimes lower, sometimes a longer step, sometimes a shorter step. And it's because we can get into cruise control so easy, and that's a danger. We can go through the motion. We can show up week in and week out, and yet not be affected by the very words of God, who the Holy Spirit wants to empower and implant in our hearts and our minds. Just be careful of that. Because what we see historically is that when one begins to get prickly towards the Word, they start to get more interested in things outside of the word. That's what the children of Israel did. So they started to get dull or go through the routine or lethargic towards the word. And what do you do when you do that? You need something to get you pumped up, to get you excited. So here comes the world and says, Here, here's all this stuff to make you excited. Here's all this stuff 
I have a dump truck of stuff, and I'm just going to dump it on you, and it's going to make you excited. And because you become numb and dull to the things of God, your heart becomes restless and will begin to seek other things. This is something we have to watch out for. This is something that is being told to us that happened to the children of Israel. And because of that, they became dull to God and then brought in all these false idols to worship. So now in verse 9, there's another thing. Now he's quoting David. In Psalm 69, verse 22, he says, this is what David said, let their table become a snare and a trap. So when he's referring to table, he could be referring to their feasts and how comfortable they got. They, this could also be referring to their rituals and ritualistic routines that they had gotten into. And David said, let their table become a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense or a payback to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back all, always. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall. So he's, he's pointing out that the Old Testament talked about their dull condition towards God. It was predicted. It was known about. It was repetitive. And then the question is, okay, as God, is he done with the Jews? Are they kicked to the curb? Over? Certainly not. And here the question comes up again. They have stumbled but have they fallen to the point where it's permanent? So he's dealing with that again. So the recognition of the failed religious state of Israel, specifically rejecting their Messiah, Jesus Christ. So because of that, are they done? Well, what would that mean to the everlasting covenant that was made to them through Abraham. Genesis 12, 1-3. What would that mean? That would mean if we could do something when God has already promised something and we can do something so that God has to reverse that promise, then we all have a big problem. What he's doing is saying, everybody look at Israel. And for the Jews, look, you've fallen, but you can't get up. It's not permanent. He says, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So you want to look at God's sovereignty? He even uses their fall and rejection of God, he uses that to fulfill his promise that through them all the nations of the earth will be blessed, not just the Jews. So he even uses their fall to fulfill his promises. Their fall has actually caused and been an amazing thing for those who are not Jews. And you remember in Jesus' time, the Jews, the religious Jews, thought that Gentiles were unclean. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. They didn't want to get near them. They didn't want to get, touch them. They thought they had no good fate beyond this earth. And that was the big problem in the early church, wasn't it? The gospel went out to the Gentiles, and the Jewish people didn't like that. That's why they were chasing Paul all around. Because Paul was going, is taking the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, and they didn't like that it went to the Gentile. And they wanted to kill Paul because of that. But remember, the promise was that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, not just the Jews. 
And so even the fall, or I should say the stumbling of the Jew now created in God's sovereignty what he said before, that then the gospel would go to the Gentiles too. So he even used that in his sovereignty. So in verse 12, he says, Now, if their fall is riches for the world, in other words, everybody else benefited from their fall, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So what does that mean? That means that when they are restored, so he's telling us they're going to be restored. If their fall meant huge blessings for everybody, what does their restoration mean for everybody? It's going to be amazing. And did you know that's how we knew even when Israel wasn't a nation for so long, we knew they had to be a nation? Because the Bible right here and in many places tells us that there is going to be a time where God deals specifically with the Jews and the way he is going to deal with them is through the time of Jacob's trouble, a seven-year period to come on the earth that Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 and, and on tells us about that he's going to deal with the Jew again as a nation. So we knew they had to be back. The Bible tells us that they're going to have a temple again. So to have a temple, they would have to be back in Jerusalem. So those scriptures would tell a person that they had to be back. That God was going to fill their, fulfill their promises, His promises to them. And it's going to be amazing when that happens. Verse 13, he says, I speak to you Gentiles... Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why? If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. In other words, Paul is not hiding the fact that his ministry is to the Gentiles primarily because he's saying that the Jews should be able to see how amazing their Messiah is to the Gentiles. And it should make them jealous. So that begs the question, our life with Christ should make other people want what we have. If we are not living our life to the full extent that God has for us. And if we are grumpy all the time and mean all the time and frantic all the time and worried all the time, there's not a lot of people that would be jealous of our God. And that's not to say we all don't, we have things we go through and life can be difficult but hey, we, God is our God. And our relationship with Him should be such that people would be jealous. And they would say, I want that. What is going on there? I want that. And you know what? We live in a time where people are looking for answers. And they're hearing all this garbage about Christianity. But you know what? They may encounter you. And they are going to see Christ in you. And they are going to experience the aroma of Christ in and through you. And so don't just think that it's important just for yourself to have the fruit of the Spirit coming through your life. It's also important for other people. Right? If, if you see a fruit tree, isn't it for people to enjoy that fruit and not... For the fruit to just sit there for the tree is for other people to enjoy. So the fruit of the Spirit should be such that other people are enjoying Christ in us to the point where they want what we have. In verse 15, it says, 
For their being cast away is the reconciling of the world. What will be their, their acceptance but life from the dead? Speaking of the Jews. Read Ezekiel 37 tonight in relationship to that verse, which is future. Verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, speaking about our faith that has come from the Jews, the lump is holy. That means you're the lump, you're lumps. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off like the Jews, and you being a wild olive tree, so have you ever used that line on a fellow Christian? You wild olive tree, you. <laughs> you are grafted in among them. So that's what we were, grafted in. And with them became par a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So, non-Jews, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, so don't boast against the Jews, but if you do, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Meaning, have you ever heard the term a Judeo-Christian faith? The reason people say that is because our faith is from the Jews. That's why we, well, one of the reasons we have an Israeli flag in there. That's one of the reasons. But we have to recognize that our faith, we stand on the shoulders of the Jewish faith. We, that's where we come from. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. So dealing with this argument of the Jews are done. They're kicked to the curb. Forget about it. We don't care about them. He's dealing with that. And he's basically saying that's ridiculous. In verse 20, well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. So that's the reason. You might want to circle unbelief. That was the whole reason that they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Don't be haughty, but instead fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you. Goodness, if you continue in. In His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. He's saying, don't get cocky. Remember, it is by faith. And don't start like they did, thinking there's something inherently in you that's so amazing that God's going to accept you. Verse 23, And they also said, or they also, if they do not continue... In unbelief, they will be grant, uh, grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Verse 24, For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the Jews, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. Again, speaking of the time, well, they'll be grafted into the faith. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until, circle that word, 
That means it's temporary. So their, their blindness, remember the stupor thing, the Old Testament thing, that does not mean that an individual Jew cannot get saved. It means in general their nation is blind to the Messiah. And if you go to Israel, you'll realize that. Just recently, there was an attack by Orthodox, Orthodox Jews on Christians who are going to have a worship night at a particular location in Jerusalem, and they're, they're attacked by Orthodox Jews. But there's going to be a time, that's what's key, there's going to be a time, and he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. What's that? That means that there's actually one last person that's going to get saved and then the rapture happens think about that there's one there's that there's going to be that one person and they get saved and then the time of the gentiles is over and after the time of the gentiles the church is going to be raptured up and then God's going to go to work on the Jews, the nation of Israel. How is he going to do that? The time of Jacob's trouble. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation period on earth. The church is going to be taken up. Why? There's no purpose for the church to be there whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense for the church to be in the tribulation. It's all about the Jews. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's about the Jews. It's about this. It's about God bringing them back as a nation to faith, and that will happen. So in verse 29, it says, And so all Israel will be saved. He's talking about the nation. As it is written, quoted from the Old Testament, The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them. There it is, the covenant. He's saying, I have a covenant. I don't break covenants. And that's when I will take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. There it is. Basically, what God has done in choosing them and using them to fulfill His promises, He will see it to the very end. Verse 30, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And you may be saying, oh man, that is so confusing. Well, it's okay. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So, hey, it says it, I see it. I believe it, but do I understand how all that works? I don't get it, but it's there. But he says, my ways are beyond finding out. Okay, well, good. I don't have to know everything. That lets me off the hook. Do you know Deuteronomy 29.29? The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. Stick with the things revealed. Stick with the things that you can know. But there are some things that all of this, I understand what it's saying, but do I really get all of that? Not really. His ways are beyond finding out. So let's just leave that to God and let's finish. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Isaiah 40, 13 he's quoting from. Or who has become his counselor? Who tells God what to do? Probably all of us, but you shouldn't. Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. That's Job 36. 
for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. So if we just take that last verse and just let everything rest there, it's all about Jesus. Let him deal with all the problems in the world. Let him deal with all the problems of your life. He is sovereign. He's taking care of Israel. He'll take care of you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It truly is a lamp unto our feet. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who have come tonight. I pray by the power of your spirit that you would impress these things on their heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, God bless you. We'll see you Sunday, Lord willing.